Welcome to A Moment of Bach, where we take our favorite moments from the composer's vast musical output, just a minute's worth or even a few seconds, and show you why we think they are remarkable. We are your hosts, Alex and Christian Giebert. Today's moment is the fugue from the second movement of the wedding cantata, Der Herr Denket an uns, BWV 196. The pastor that married Bach and his first wife, Maria Barbara, ended up getting married a few months later. And it's probably true that this cantata was written for that wedding. It's a wedding cantata with a wedding text, a passage from a psalm about God's blessing. And it was probably written by Bach for this pastor, Johann Stauber. And that would make it about 1707, 1708, which is quite early. And we have looked at another early cantata by Bach, the Gotteszeit cantata, and that one has its own stylistic differences from Bach's later stuff. I happen to love the really early stuff. It's sort of continuous, doesn't get too bogged down with Italian-style recitatives, isn't too long, sort of has some really interesting old-style motifs in it. And that's true of this one, one of my favorite cantatas, Der Herr Denket an uns, this one. The text for the entire cantata is pretty short. The first movement is an instrumental introduction called the Sinfonia, so it doesn't have any words. The entire rest of the cantata has the German text of that passage from Psalm 115. The English is, The Lord has been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless them that fear the Lord, both small and great. The Lord shall increase you more and more, you and your children. You are blessed of the Lord, which made heaven and earth. Amen. That's it. That's the whole text of the whole entire thing. And... The moment of Bach for today focuses on only one line of one part of that text. You can tell by listening to those words that it is appropriate for a wedding, especially in a time period where you would expect that the most beneficial thing to ask for at a wedding would be your health and your new life together and any children you might have. I'm picking this one actually because it's my wedding anniversary coming up. And uh, my wife Megan and I got married on this next week after this podcast is to be released. That's the anniversary.
But this is our first wedding anniversary where we now have a baby girl. And she's 10 months old as of a couple of days ago. And we named her Evangeline. And we say Evie for short. She uh, has a middle name, Brooke. And we chose these names because Evangeline has a name with a really cool meaning. It means bearer of good news or bringer of good news, right? Because the yeah. the Angeline part there is from the word angel. That word means messenger. And then you've got that first part, E-V or E-U in the original Greek means good. So the good news bearer also kind of appears in box works as that character, the evangelist, which is the person who in the passions narrates the stuff that happens in in the bible right and then you've got her middle name brooke which i can't believe that i got my wife to agree to this but it's a pretty name and everything but also brooke means bach bach means brooke right in german the word bach is actually just a noun it means brook as in like a stream of water so we love the imagery of that and that it's just a nice name but I also kind of like to say that I had my child named after Bach. <laughs> yeah, and if it was going to be a boy, it's going to be Johann Sebastian Kiebert, right? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> no, no one would have objected to that no would, yeah. at all. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I told <laughs> told her that the first child, if it's a girl or boy, has to have the two middle names, Johann Sebastian. <laughs> no, no, the three middle names, Johann Sebastian Bach Kiebert. Right. There you go. Yeah. But really, no, we went, we went with just the one first, one middle, one last, I guess. So the first choral movement of this cantata has one of my favorite fugues in it of all time, I'd say. Bach was known for fugues and fugue writing, and uh, some people know about that because he's got some famous works like The Art of Fugue and things like that. But that doesn't mean that everyone knows what that means. And a lot of people just assume that it just means some really interesting, complicated thing. But to get into it just a little bit, this is a perfect example, because this fugue is so tight and well-composed, the one from this first choral movement on this one line, Er segnet das Haus Israel, he will bless the house of Israel. And that's all the words that are used during this fugue. And a little bit of the next line, too. I think it not only makes for a great example, but I'm calling it my moment this week because I just love how perfectly it fits like a puzzle piece. So the idea is that you can take a memorable musical theme. We call that a subject. Alex, we briefly talked about this on our first episode where we have the Dona Nobis Pachum, and we've got overlapping imitative things going up like ocean waves one on top of the other you can do this in all kinds of different ways right you can start with one part let's say a soprano and that soprano or group of sopranos can sing this melody and then another part can come in let's say the altos they'll come in with the melody again but it's not exactly the same notes because it's up or down, in this case, down a little bit, right? But then what does the soprano do during this time? They don't stop. They need to do something else in harmony that works nicely. But it can't just be harmony in the strictest sense. It has to be independent, because that's the style of this music. 
So it goes off and does something different that contrasts. And that's often called the countersubject, depending on how many times it shows up again in the same way. And it can go on and on like this with three or four or more parts entering. But the thing is, every time something enters from nothing, it will have that very prominent, memorable musical theme that we call the subject. In a way, this is a lot like what we call a cannon or a round, right? Think row, row, row your boat. So in row, row, row your boat, the first person starts singing, right? And then when the second person starts singing, they start on the same note, just they start later, right? And then when the third person starts, they also start on the same note, but they start even later. And it creates a wonderful counterpoint of overlapping parts. That's called a canon. This is like that, except it's a little bit more complicated because when the second part enters, it does not enter on the same notes as the first part. It enters on different notes. When the third part enters though, it usually enters on the same notes as the first part, maybe up or down an octave, and then the fourth often mimics the second. And so it's like a little puzzle. And then it usually has to come together and end in some sort of conclusion so that they all end together. Because you might be thinking, if you're thinking of it mathematically, let's say that your melody is X amount of time long. Well, then the first person who starts is gonna get done first, right? And then at the end, there's just gonna be one part left over and that doesn't create really a satisfying musical conclusion. Yeah, like when you're doing row, row, row your boat and it's people don't know whether they should repeat it because everybody else is still singing in a different time than they are. So <laughs> you're gonna get some confusion there. Right, and actually it's really interesting that in this fugue, if you listen to the voice parts alone, it actually does work like that the first time they sing the phrase. And then when Bach reintroduces the voices later in a different order, they do end in a satisfying conclusion altogether. But this fugue is so internally perfect that if you break it down, it's just, just completely logical, almost computer-like. You've got the first part coming in, you can pay no real attention to the bass line that is also happening that's just supporting us with harmony, right? You've got sopranos coming in first. Then you've got the altos coming in. Sopranos go to a different thing. And then so on, the tenors. Then the bass is But if you were to listen to the soprano part as it goes, it has the subject. And then it has a counter subject. But then it's gotta do something. It's gotta do a third thing when the third part comes in with the subject. And it does, it does a third thing. And then when the fourth part comes in, it has to do a fourth thing. A 
a lot of times composers don't really care at this point. They just fill in the notes just to make it work, right? But for Bach here, he writes almost like a row, row, row your boat canon where it actually does go all the way from the beginning to the end. And then when the alto comes in, it happens a little lower and a little later, but all the way continuous. And then the tenor again and the bass again, and it works all the way. And Alex, you pointed out that the instruments, the strings come in sort of near the end of this and start filling it in. Then the voices come back in in a different order. Starts with the alto. Then the soprano. Then the bass. Then the tenor. And by this point, it's like really cooking and it needs to get to a satisfying conclusion and it finally does do that. Right, one really nice exercise is to just try and listen to one voice and follow it through. There's enough complexity going on that it's easy to get lost. But if you just follow one voice, like to start with listening to the soprano voice, and when the alto does join for the first time in this fugue, try and keep your ear on the soprano voice until the soprano stops singing in this case. It'll be right around after the bass comes in. But it's, it's kind of a long time to be listening to that, but it's, since it's the top voice, it's a little easier than trying to follow one of the inner voices but it's a nice little exercise. And then another thing I would say that's cool to listen for is once the soprano is done, yeah, the alto, tenor, and bass are still singing. The alto is about to finish off its line. So once the soprano ends, we then get one of the violins, the second violin, coming in with that same exact melody, that same subject, like you were saying, Christian, that the strings kind of take over there. And I remember realizing this about Bach uh, a while back. I remember thinking about these fugues, these vocal fugues in these cantatas and in these movements of uh, larger works and realizing that, oh my goodness, he a lot of times has the instrumental parts doing the parts of the fugue too, especially after the instrument. Mm, independently. After, yeah, after the vocal parts have come in with their subjects, then the violin one and violin two or, or some other instruments have independent lines as if they were singing it, just another statement of the fugue so that you've got a five or six or seven part texture and just... As a composer, um, this is just really impressive to look at because you don't just throw these notes on a page and go, I'm going to try throwing five things in here, and I'm going to throw a sixth one in here because the thing is, each of these parts has to interact in a sort of um, legal way with yeah, the there, other ones. There are, there are rules. rules. Yeah, There are rules with the way these things have to go. They don't... They don't double at the octave kind of like we talked about two episodes ago with the Pentecost cantata how Bach was able to have this freer idea of these instru these instruments doubling at the octave in one of those arias that's not how it would work in a fugue you don't just have two voices coming together at the octave they need to be coming in at separate times in separate lines and those lines need to be working if they're working together they need to be in harmony with each other typically at the third or the sixth interval. And if they're working in opposite directions, 
then that needs to make sure that they like ended the right space. And it's just, it's so complicated. It's, there's no way to even get into that in a podcast format, but it's cool to, to explore more fugues in the future. There's, there's a lot to do there, but, but getting into the very, very specifics of the way each note must resolve is out of the scope of what you can do in an audio medium, I think. Yeah. Even with examples. But it's it's enough to say that there are very strict rules about how two parts interact with each other, and everything can be seen that way. It's just that when you have three parts, you've got three interactions of pairs of parts, right? Yeah. And it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger as you get more voices, so it must have taken a lot longer to work out. Each part of each melody must harmonize perfectly with any other part in a fugue as strict as this one. Since basically all combinations do occur, this is the same thing as the math concept of permutation. When you write four parts which have to go together, you have to check six pairs to make sure their interaction is legal, right? To make it simple, let's call our four parts of music A, B, C, and D. So each pair of those has to work together. So A and B have to work, A and C, A and D, that's three. B and C, B and D, and then finally C and D, and that's all the pairs. So that's six. The thing you reminded me of, Alex, is that in the Mass in B minor, that Credo in Unum Deum yes. is a fugue for five voices, and then two violins come in, and it's all happening at the same time, so it is a seven-part fugue. Yeah, that's exactly the, the piece I was thinking of back in my undergrad time. I, that's the piece that made me think more clearly about this kind of fugal stuff. I was really into studying the Mass in B minor. And that's the one that made me think, whoa, those instrumental parts are doing these fugue subjects. They're just all, it's all interlocking. And in that particular example, which I'm sure we'll cover sometime because I love that one, it's cool because it starts with the tenor doing the subject kind of out of nowhere, singing credo, which means like, I believe. And it's about, I believe in one God. And it's just this one note, just out of nowhere, it's just cool. But then the whole time, there's this nice little walking bass, too. So that's another great one to get to another time. And when you write seven parts like this, which have to go together, then you have to check 21 pairs to make sure that those interactions are legal. It's enough for us as musicians composers, uh, songwriters, it's enough for us to think about how tough it is to write a melody and harmony with it, right? Yeah. But now we're talking about writing a melody and then a second part that's not just harmony has to work harmonically, but is actually its own independent part. And then a third one, and then a fourth one, and so on. also having to follow, I think it's safe to say, much stricter rules of musical counterpoint than have survived to this day, where rules are a little bit less strict in a lot of styles of music today regarding how two different musical lines get to interact with each other. Yeah, the the rules of polyphony in common practice era, so like basically Baroque through, through classical romantic and stuff like that with some exceptions, common practice era rules for polyphony is one of, if not the most complex thing that has ever happened in the history of Western music. Exactly. Because there's a lot more rhythmic complexity and tonal complexity and color complexity and other things like that to other musical styles that's not Western music. But this common practice era of Western music has that as its claim to, uh, to sort of excellence, I would say. I mean, that's 
that's really the big thing that we can say about that whole era. Right, because every time we talk about classical music in this context with Bach, we're talking about a narrow slice of music in general. And it's good to sometimes remember that in terms of big picture music of around the world, Western music is pretty pathetic in terms of rhythmic, rhythmic and complexity, yeah. um, even like improvisation, complexity of timbre, which is like tone quality and uh, things like that. And also like interesting scales and different different scales than what we would think of as tuning our Western. Tuning systems. Yeah, yeah and, the, and the ways that you can use like detuning to be part of improvisation sometimes in some of the other cultures' mm-hmm. music. Yeah. So many different other aspects of music. However, what, what Western music does have is the systematic harmony, you know, which with, comes with that is, like you said, Alex, polyphony, which means multiple parts interacting together with their own harmonic rules. And speaking of old Western music, this fugue, the subject, is very kind of simple, right? It's just just kind of a melody that walks down a couple steps. Very simple. Sol, do, do, ti, ti, la, la, sol. Very simple and small in range, right? Just four notes. And yeah. it harkens to older music. And this would be the old style of composing a melody and making a fugue, which is why Bach knew that he was free to use those older styles of counterpoint because Bach did live in a time when he was, he's of course now regarded as the master of counterpoint, but he lived after many hundreds of years of people working in styles that we now call like the Renaissance, for example, where counterpoint was, was basically all they were doing too. Yeah. And one thing to note about these, these four part fugues, it's so nice to split up the voices into soprano, alto, tenor, and bass because the ranges just work so nicely. So like the soprano range is a higher voice, right? And the tenor range is a higher male voice too. So typically when the subject starts with a soprano, like it does here, it means that the next entrance is going to be an alto or bass. And here it's an alto. And that's because, like you said, Christian, the rules dictate that most of the time we're going to have that second entrance happen on starting on a different pitch. And to get a little technical, it's on the fourth or fifth away almost every time. Mm-hmm. And it just, but it's the same melody, it's just transposed, right? Then on the third entrance, you're going to get the same as the first entrance, the same note, but at the octave above or below. In this case, it'll be below because it's tenor, so it's an octave below soprano, typically in range. And then finally, the last one will be the bass. So that's again, it's, it's analogous to the alto one in range. It's just an octave lower than that. So it looks really neat when you're looking at it. And the way that it's put together is actually very simple. But the complexity is comes in to all the ways, that, like you said, Christian, that the melodies interact with each other as you're listening to them. And to create a musical texture that really flows so smoothly. All the rules have to be followed. And it's so precise, but that's not what it sounds like, right? When these, just listen to the Netherlands Box Society performance, it's so effortless sounding. It just sounds like it was almost, it's like almost nature, right? It was like just ordained to be this way. 
because this melody just works so well. Of course, we know that Bach probably spent ages on figuring it out, making sure that it worked just right. But the result is just this effortlessly flowing stream of notes. It's a perfect little babbling brook of notes, like a, a Bach, a brook, <laughs> a moment of brook. Yeah. <laughs> and now, here is that fugue, which begins with the words, Er segnet das Haus Israel. If this introduction to a musical moment has inspired you to hear the rest of this piece, please see the link in the episode description to see the performance of this wedding cantata, Der Herr Denket an uns, by the Netherlands Bach Society. Do you want to hear our new episodes as we release them? Find us on your podcast app and hit subscribe. We love to see your feedback, and we love to see your presence on our Facebook page and Instagram page and on our website, amomentofbach.com. Please suggest what you might like to hear as your next Moment of Bach on the podcast. Just in case you missed last week's episode, we had a guest on, Pastor Eric Clausen. We had a really fun time interviewing him, and we plan on having more guests in the future. In fact, we've got some scheduled so look forward to some more guest appearances in the future. Yeah, including musicians who uh, play Bach, too. Yeah. We're also on a whole bunch of podcast directories by this point, so we hope that you uh, are finding us on those things or telling your friends, if you have a friend that only listens to things a certain way. We, uh, we know that um, some of you might be wondering, how do I do this? I'm just looking on Facebook and going straight to like something like Podbean and listening to things that way. But there are ways that you can get it on your phone. And some of those are like apps and things like that that make it really easy. And the big ones are Apple, if you have an iPhone. Apple Podcasts would be on your phone already. Um, If you have a Pixel, maybe it's Google that you can use. 
there are a lot of different ways. And if you and if you're a connoisseur of some of the more interesting and lesser used apps, I think we've got you covered. We are in iTunes and Spotify, Pandora, things like that, iHeartRadio. We're also on Stitcher, Amazon Music, which includes Alexa, so you can play us on that device. Audible, Player FM, Podchaser, Listen Notes, the Overcast app, the Downcast app, Podcast Republic, the Radio Public app, Pocket Casts, Castbox, Podcast Addict, <laughs> wow. Acast, Podcast Gang, the Castro app, Deezer, <laughs> and AnyPod, which is through Alexa. And um, I'm reminded by Alex to tell you that these are actually, in fact, real. <laughs> I didn't make <laughs> all, any. All of those are real I didn't podcasts. even throw in a fake one. Those are real. And we also have a YouTube channel where our videos are uploaded as well, if you prefer that as a way to listen to podcasts. So what's next week, Alex? Next week, we're going to be looking at English Suite Number 1 in A Major, a harpsichord piece, BWV 806. Until next time, enjoy those moments. I should have thrown in a fake one just for fun. Castbox, Gamecast. Castbox is real. Gamepod. Dreamcast. Dreamcast. Playcast. Bachcast. Bachcast. Xbox. Xbox 360. <laughs> Put that in at the end. For fun. But really, there's no limit on middle names, so why not just put them all in there, right. you know? I mean, the crab... <laughs> What? The crab. <laughs> I mean, the, you know, <laughs> the crab. I mean, my favorite <laughs> person with many middle names is, of course, Sebastian from The Little Mermaid. You yeah, know, the crab. Another Sebastian. Also a composer. Yes. And a musician. musician. A, a court musician. Uh-huh. Yeah. Of course, as we all know <laughs> from looking up his full name, it's Horatio Theolonius Ignatius Crustaceous <laughs> Sebastian. <laughs> so his last name is Sebastian. So he goes by his last name.